today is a day where we celebrate, we contemplate, we, we mourn, and, and yet it's mingled with gratitude, uh, celebration in, in one sense for the death of Jesus Christ. And so prayerfully, wherever you're at, um, you're allowing that, that love to sink in. Hopefully your, your hearts are getting opened up and you're just asking God to, to work in you uh, wherever we are in our spiritual geography. Uh, a couple of things before we get into the study. I uh, just want to give you an update on Henry. He's doing better. He uh, he's, did do the test for the virus and he's negative and so he doesn't have it. He's still not 100% though, so he, he is a lot better. Thank you for your prayers. Um, we want to just let you know we got a church blog that's uh, on our page. We're still working on it. Lord willing, uh, tonight we'll get it all updated with people who are in the front lines that we're just praying for, the nurses, uh, doctors, uh, those on law enforcement and other places, uh, food industry, uh, just those that are still out there. And in one sense, a lot of you guys, it's kind of cool. I talked to you. You're able to work from home. Uh, others, they're just hunkered down at home. But then there are those uh, like in UPS, FedEx, other places that they have to go out there. And every single day, you know, they're doing that for us. And so what I had asked is if you're, that's you, maybe send us a picture, maybe a word. You don't have to, but a word of what God has been doing in your life and, and kind of how we can pray for you. And you can email it to us, and then we're going to post it on our church blog and uh, just our way of uh, just kind of staying together in, in that sense. And so um, prayerfully, uh, you guys are doing all right. Tonight we're going to be in Matthew chapter 27. If you have a Bible, uh, let's go ahead and open up there as we celebrate what we on this side of town anyways call Good Friday. Uh, other places, uh, like for example in Europe, they call it Great Friday or Holy Friday. Um, in Germany, I thought it was interesting, they call it Quiet Friday because uh, on Friday uh, when Jesus died, the church bells stop ringing and they don't start ringing again until Easter Sunday. And so, you know, I don't know how you feel going throughout the day. I know for me, when 9 o'clock came around, it just hit me. I thought about it. Lord, this is when they nailed you to a cross. And you just start thinking about it. As he was there on the cross for six hours, and then at 3 p.m., he laid down his life. And so throughout the week, hopefully you've been able to kind of catch on the, the studies that we've been sharing. Some of the pastors have been sharing. Again, something available on our church blog, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, kind of going through Passion Week. We're actually going to have another one even on Saturday. Uh, Rich is going to share on that one. But, but tonight, uh, today is Good Friday. And uh, as we work our way to our text today, I just kind of wanted to give you a little bit of background on what happened that Friday. Now, we know that when Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane, it was probably late, late on Thursday. And so most theologians, most teachers believe that on Friday morning in the wee hours of the morning, that's when Judas came, he betrayed Jesus with a kiss, and Jesus was arrested. At that point, we find that, you know, you pick up Friday, the apostles, uh, they split, they abandoned him for a, a period of time. A couple came closer, John the Beloved and Peter, but, but this is kind of where we pick it up on Friday morning. He's betrayed, he's arrested, he's forsaken there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, you might remember, and we'll talk a little bit about this, when he was there in the Garden, 
he went and he just fell on his face and he prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And he went and he, and he prayed that repeatedly. And one of the things that you'll hear me share uh, throughout the years, I always share this on Good Friday, is that, you know, why did Jesus not want to die? You know, and I think it was kind of a part of his humanity. But, but, but it, when you look at the big picture, number one, I say it this way, it started with the suffering. The, the suffering was the start. The sin that he would bear was a part of it. But the separation from his father was the heart of it. And so, yeah, the suffering, we can't even begin to imagine what it would be like for the devil to now have his opportunity to sought God, to mock God, you know, to scourge him, to, to, to do all this to him. I mean, imagine what the suffering was like. Uh, that was the start of it. But and then there's a sin. You know, the sin that he would bear, the sins of the world, all the ugliness, all the darkness, all the things that maybe most of you watching tonight, you would never even begin to ever do anything. The things that have gone on in this world, all the sins of all the time, they were all laid on him. Imagine that. The Holy One who knew no sin would bear the sin. He, that's why when you read in the Old Testament, it's interesting you know, they would lay their hands on the animal. That was a symbol of transferring the sins to the animal. And then they would kill it. And so, again, the suffering is the start of it. The sin is the part of it. But the worst part of all for Jesus was that now when the sins were laid on him, we see the last three hours on the cross that he was separated from his father. Because we're going to see that the father, uh, God is holy, his eyes are pure, that he cannot behold evil. He can't look upon sin with favor. And it was at that moment that Jesus was forsaken. And there he hung on that cross. And so we're, we're working our way towards that. And when we look at that, there in the garden, uh, it's amazing. Jesus prayed so hard that the Bible says he sweat drops of blood. It's hematidrosis. That's a medical condition where the blood uh, would actually ooze into the sweat pores. And that we have a, a precedence of this in which people under extreme stress would experience this type of suffering. And so, you know, Jesus in the garden going through all that, he gets up and he goes and he faces his betrayer. He says, my time has come. He wakes up the guys and he's arrested. And uh, there in the garden, he's forsaken by his apostles. And then, real quick, when you look at what happened, he was first taken and examined by Annas, who was the former high priest. He still kind of had the religious power, but it was illegal. Nevertheless, uh, they had a, a little trial there, so to speak, before dawn. And then after that, he was then uh, condemned by Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, who then mocked and buffeted him. That was at the residence of Caiaphas. And then what we find is that Peter denies the Lord three times there at the court of the high priest's residence. And then after that, Jesus is formally condemned by the Sanhedrin. And so one of the things you're going to see, Jesus was beaten and mocked and, and all these things. He's walking miles. He doesn't sleep all night. And he goes to uh, these different high priests, then before the Sanhedrin. And, and then after that, in the morning, because the Jews condemned Jesus to death, they didn't have the power to put him to death. 
And so they first took him to Pilate, and then Pilate knew, found out that Jesus' jurisdiction was in Galilee, so he took him to Herod, and then Herod then sent him back to Pilate. And then what we find is that Pilate didn't want anything to do with it. You know, Pilate's wife warned him, have nothing to do with this man because he's just, and she had dreams, and he knew it in his heart, and he tried everything he could to get out of it. But you can't get out of making a decision about Jesus, whether you're for him or against him. And so what Pilate decided to do, a couple of things he tried to get out of it. Number one is he had Jesus scourged, and then he presented him to the people, and he was hoping that the compassion would come out of the people when they saw Jesus scourged in such a way. When they scourged you in those days, they would take the cat of nine tails, these leather strips with bits of, of glass and metal and rocks and bones and what they did was they would take it and they would lash it. It would just tear away the flesh. Now we know in the Jewish world that the most uh, stripes a person could have would be 39. But the Romans didn't have that limit. And so here was Jesus presented to the people a bloody mess crowned with thorns. And, uh, and Pilate says, behold the man. And the people, rather than having compassion, what they did is they yelled out all the more, crucify him. Pilate tried to make a deal saying, well, if I give you the choice between Barabbas and Jesus, who are you going to choose? They chose to set Barabbas free and they chose to have Jesus crucified. And so we have this. Uh, the Roman soldiers then mock Jesus. And this is all taking place before 9 a.m. And then what they do is they take him and then Jesus carries his cross all the way to Golgotha. And we're going to see it now in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 33. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. And then they crucified him. And so a lot of times when I'm reading the Bible, you know, you can probably just kind of jet past that. But, uh, you know, that's a, a big thing, what we see right here. Uh, Jesus arrives uh, to this place called Golgotha. It's kind of Hebrew, but it's primarily an Aramaic word. In the Latin, the word is Calvary. And what it means is place of a skull. And, and there, as they are about to crucify Jesus, they offer him, it says in verse 34, some sour wine and so at, at that moment William Barclay said in order to deaden the pain the criminal was given a drink of mixed wine prepared by a group of wealthy women in Jerusalem as an act of mercy and so uh, one writer said this when a man is going out to be killed they allow him to drink a grain of frankincense and a cup of wine to deaden his senses they said that the wealthy women of Jerusalem used to contribute these things and, and bring them. And so they offered the cup to Jesus, but once he found out what it was, he wouldn't drink it because he was determined to accept death at its bitterest pain. And, and what we find is that Jesus here didn't want to take the painkiller because he was about to redeem the world. And he knew that the battle wasn't over, that Satan was still going to fight him for this. And so what we find is that Jesus there, he says, no, I'm not going to dull my senses. Goes to Golgotha. If you go to, thus to Israel, you can still see the place. 
And then uh, they offer him the wine, uh, the gall. He says no, and then they crucify him. And so, you know, crucifixion is an interesting way of putting someone to death. It was predicted in Psalm chapter 22 where it says they pierce his hands. And, and what we find is that this was a prophecy written even before crucifixion was invented. You know, the Phoenicians invented uh, crucifixion, and then the Romans, what they did is they, um, they, they refined it to the place where it would provide the maximum amount of pain for the maximum amount of time. And that's what crucifixion was. Generally speaking, when a person was crucified, they would be there for days, and the animals would then come. It was a humiliating way of, of being put to death. The animals would come, the birds would come and eat the flesh and it's just an awful excruciating way of dying you know and there we see jesus being crucified for our sins you know one of the things i encourage you to do if you have an opportunity is look up on blue letter bible or online you can just type in the medical aspects of the cross and there you'll see uh, all the things that our lord went through in order to demonstrate his love for us and so as they're there, we read in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 35, it says, And then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that I might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And so this would be a fulfillment of Psalm chapter 22 in, in verse 18 and, and it's interesting when you read psalm 22 um, man you can just see the whole uh, event unfold right before your eyes um, jesus we're going to see later he actually cries out the very first verse of psalm 22 my god my god why have you forsaken me and what he's trying to do is he's trying to draw everyone's attention to the fulfilled prophecy there in psalm uh, 22 but whenever uh, an, a citizen was crucified, uh, not a Roman citizen, but the others, when they were crucified, they would have four soldiers. It was a squadron of soldiers that would take them, uh, and they would kind of oversee each person that was crucified. And so Jesus had four soldiers, but he had five articles of clothing. Uh, according to, again, William Barclay, he said that every Jew wore five articles of clothing. He had his shoes, his turban, his girdle, his inner garment, and his outer cloak. And so there you have the five articles for the four soldiers. Now the first four articles were of equal, equal value, but the outer cloak was more valuable than the others. And so it was for Jesus' outer cloak that the soldiers drew lots, as John tells us in his gospel, chapter 19, verse 23 through 24. And so, you know, you read that and some of might say, well, how is that significant? Well, significant, number one, because of the fact that it's a fulfilled prophecy. But, but number two, it's significant because here is God loving on the world. Here is God dying for our sins. Here is God right in front of them, you know, just bearing the, the, the burden to save us forever. And here are the soldiers. What are they doing? They're playing games at the cross. You know, they're throwing their dice. You know, they're gambling for clothing. And to me, you know, it, it kind of symbolizes, I think, the attitude of the world. I mean, 
You know, our God loves us so much that he gave his son to die for us. But a lot of times what ends up happening is we're distracted by all these other things. And there is our Lord just saying to us, you know, I love you. Don't get caught up in all these other things. You know, when I was thinking about Good Friday, you know, today, and I was just thinking, wow, Lord, in one sense, it's kind of like, and I know it's different, but it's kind of like going to a funeral. You know, when, when someone dies, you know, someone you love, or, or even someone you just know, you know, you show them the respect by, by going to their service, right? There's something about that, the honoring their life, uh, acknowledging their passing, their death. And that's kind of what, to me, I, I think all of you guys that are, that are watching and people that would attend a Good Friday service, to me, that's kind of what it is. It's not just a, a religious obligation one of the handful of holy days that we have on our Christian calendar, to me, it's almost like going to God's funeral. Of course, we know he's gonna, he was going to rise in three days, but, you know, God died. God died for us. You think about that. Revelation chapter 5, the lamb that was slain. Think about that. And that's why, you know, we're not doing other things right now. That's why right now we're pausing in life and we're acknowledging this. You know, rather than like these soldiers right here, you know, they're so preoccupied with other things. Let me tell you something. You can uh, live your life that way. It's not just a moment of time. You know, it can happen, I think, even uh, to a Christian in one sense, although they have accepted Jesus as their, as their Lord and Savior, you know, and, they're, and they got the fire insurance, and if they were to die today, they would go to heaven because salvation is a gift, and, and it's, it's freely given to us, and thank God for that. But, but how many Christians are really, truly sold out and surrendered, completely committed? How many are reaching out to others? How many are desiring to, to walk in, in holiness and love and find out why they were made and what their gifts are and what their mission is in life and how many uh, they do you know they really have their eyes on the lord you know john shared that passage earlier in hebrews chapter 12 in, in verse 2 it says fixing our eyes on jesus hebrews 12 verse 1 it says therefore since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us run with endurance the race that we've been given, laying aside every weight in the sin that easily besets us. You know, Hebrews chapter 12, it, it follows up uh, Hebrews chapter 11, which is a hall of faith, where you have all these people who, uh, man, they, they, they were saved and, and they were used by God and they were there, you know, in their time, in their season, you know, and they, and they just, man, they were serving God and we have to learn from that. He says, let's, let's do the same. Lay aside the weights and the sins. You know, the weights are those things that, yeah, they're permissible. If you want to, you can do that. That's fine. But it's not really what God calls us to do. It's not really the, the life that God's calling us to live. The, the sins, obviously, are obvious. You know, if you're running a race, you're going to travel light. And that's how we have to live for the Lord. You know, when we see these soldiers, imagine uh, missing out on this. God 
Imagine, I don't know, only the Lord knows, but imagine if those soldiers are in hell right now, thinking about the truth that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, God died right there, right in front of them. And so, um, looking at this, I think there's a message for us. For a church, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's look upon the one who died for us. But if you're not a Christian, yeah, man, it's easy to get caught up in all these other things. Look at what God did. You know, every other religion in the world, you have to earn your way up to God. You have to try to be good enough. Christianity is the only religion in the world where God came down to us and he did all the work. All he asks you to do is believe. And so we see here that as Jesus is there on the cross, it says again in verse 35 that they they crucified him, divided his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets in Psalm 22, verse 18. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And it says, sitting down, they kept watch over him, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And, and so when an individual was crucified in the Roman world, as they're carrying their cross down the Via Dolorosa, they, they would be carrying this 70-pound, think about that, that, that wooden uh, cross beam. And usually what they would have is a sign with someone walking in front of them with the accusation. And so either someone's walking in front of Jesus, sometimes they would have it hanging around their neck. This is the accusation against him, that this individual claims to be the king of the Jews. And what we find uh, is that that's exactly who Jesus is. That's exactly what he said at the end of the day. That's exactly what got the religious leaders upset, that he ended up saying that he was the, the Christ the son of the living God. And, and for us, you know, that's not just an accusation. That's the reality of who he is. You know, I know we live in a democracy and we probably don't really, you know, know a whole lot about, you know, what it would be like to live under uh, a king. But as Christians, that's exactly where we live. He is not just the king. He's the king of kings. Uh, when Jesus claimed to be the king... What he was claiming to be was that one descendant of David who would be the Christ. Uh, that means the anointed one, the Messiah in the Hebrew language. When you read the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies about this coming king, about this coming Messiah, about the ones that the Jews were waiting for all those years. And then Jesus came. Uh, finally, he's the Christ, and that means the anointed prophet, priest, and king. And those were the three offices that were anointed in the Old Testament. And so as the anointed one, uh, Jesus Christ is the one who's the prophet with the message. He's the priest with, that means he's the mediator, and he's the king. That means he's the majesty. And so as Jesus is there, uh, us understanding who, who he is, it's just amazing to me that this was all part of God's plan. 
And that's what God did. You know, Jesus died for his bride. And even though everything was coming against him, even though all hell came against him, even though he did it all by himself, all by himself, he went through it all. You know, these guys, imagine you're on the cross and they're wagging their heads, you know, and you have the different people that are, are coming by. They knew It says about the sign that Jesus told them about in John chapter 2. Actually, I want you to turn there. Notice what Jesus says in, in John chapter 2. Look at verse 13. It says, this is early on in Jesus' ministry. It's interesting. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers were doing business. And when he made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. And so this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He goes to the temple and he sees all these people. It's like a, a, a house of merchandise in which they're just selling things. They're just making money. A lot of the church, unfortunately, is like that. And Jesus goes in there and just he drives them all out. Think about that. And so it says in verse uh, 18, the Jews answered and said to him, well, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And so the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said. And so the Lord said, This is a sign I'll destroy the temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. Now, all these religious leaders, they heard his prediction, and, and, they, and they took it uh, literally. They took it fleshly. They took it physically. And so now, think about it. It's three and a half years later, and Jesus is there three years later on the cross, and they're saying, you who say you're going to destroy the temple and raise it up. No, you can't even get down from the cross. They say to him there, you know, you who destroy the temple, build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Who's talking? That's the devil. That's the devil trying to defeat our Lord. You know, and, if, and Jesus could have, like I said before, it's not that he necessarily needed us. He could have said, I'm done with this. But if he had saved himself, he wouldn't have been able to save us. Likewise, we have not only the mockers, we have the, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. It says there again in verse 41, 
that, he, that he, the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. And then we know he, Jesus here, um, he just doesn't abide. He doesn't listen to what they say. You know, he holds on to the, really the promises of God. You know, and the, the whole issue here of salvation, right? He saved others. Himself he cannot save. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing on that cross that Good Friday. He was in the process of paying the price that he didn't know because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. You know, what we find is that this is about salvation. And, you know, there's an interesting passage in the book of Job, chapter 13 and verse 15. Because at the end of the day, what Jesus did was he, he just gave his life to, to, to the Father. And, and Job 13, 15, it says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And so that is the first three hours of Jesus on the cross. But then we read next in verse 44 that the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. And then in verse 45, it says, Now from the sixth hour... Until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And so that would be from 12 noon to 3 p.m. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and took a sponge filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered to him, uh, to him to drink. And the rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And so at, at, at noon, it says right here that there was, there was darkness in the land. And of course we know that's not random. Of course we know that's not a coincidence. Of course we know that God himself was making a statement. You know that now what was happening were the sins of the world were placed on Jesus. Think about that. All the bad, all the wrong, all the way we've missed the mark. All the abortions, all the murders, all, all, all the rapes, all the lies, all, all the lies, all the pride, all the sins of all the world, of all the time, were laid on him. And there was darkness over the land. Imagine what a darkness that was. You know, I was reading about how some churches, what they do on Good Friday is they turn out all the lights, they extinguish all the candles, and what they do is have the people sit in darkness, in total darkness, as a reminder of the darkness that covered the earth and those three hours on that Good Friday. And so God, again, you know, trying to get uh, our attention. You know, it was interesting today. I don't know if you guys uh, caught what our president shared. Um, some really, really cool words about um, this holiday, about Good Friday, about Easter. I mean, I was just so blessed. And again, I don't know where your politics are, but man, to hear him say something like, you know, that we're celebrating our Lord and Savior, you know, Jesus. Imagine that. He's saying our Lord and Savior. 
he was saying that during this time, even though we can't go to church service at Easter, he's saying that we can maybe, rather than do that, focus on our personal relationship with God. Think about that. And so it was just so cool to hear that. But one of the verses he quoted was uh, Isaiah chapter 60, and I want to read it to you. He quoted it in, in verse 2. I'm going to start in verse 1 where it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and the glory will be seen upon you. And, and when I was listening to what he said, and then I was just studying for today about this darkness that covered the earth, I was just saying, well, that's Good Friday. That's exactly what happened. There's this darkness that covered the earth at 12 noon, symbolizing the sin of our world and the doom apart from Christ. Imagine that situation. But there is Jesus, the light of the world redeeming us on that cross. And so, you know, you read the, the story here, and, and as the Lord is on the cross, notice in verse 46, it was about the ninth hour, so it's right around 3 o'clock. It was then that Jesus cried out with a, with a loud voice. That means he wants everyone to hear him. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this was... The, the moment, man, where for the first time in all of history, the Son was separated from the Father. You know, why did Jesus pray for that cup to pass? I believe that this is the main reason, because of the fact that he would be separated. You know, we believe that it was because at this moment, all the sins of the world were laid upon him. You know, the Bible tells us in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, that God is of purer eyes than to behold evil. He cannot look upon wickedness with pleasure. And so it was here in this dungeon of darkness with all the sin and all the depravity and all that that Jesus was forsaken for the first time in all of eternity. That's why he prayed in Matthew 26, 39 and Matthew 26, 42 that the cup would pass from him. But what we find is that Jesus here um, said, Not my will, but thy will be done. And this was the only way that we could be redeemed to God. You know, some people will tell you, well, you know, Christianity is just one of many ways. You know, that there's other faiths, it's other ways to get there. And let me just say this. If there were, was another way, then Jesus would not have had to die. You know, he said, if it's possible, um, if, if they could just be a good person, if their good works maybe could outweigh their bad works, we'll teach them morality. Or, you know, you know what about you know, other religions? I mean, it, it doesn't require the sacrifice. But what we find when we read the reality of the scriptures is without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That in order for us to have life, God had to die. And there he was, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and again, you know, we, we know that the Bible says in John chapter 3, verse 16, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Today I was just uh, uh, reading a little bit with my family and I was praying with them. And uh, I was praying, you know, thank you, Father, for giving your son. And I just thought about it. And then again, it's because I'm kind of slow. I don't know why it hasn't hit me before. You know, that there's the the forgiveness because the Father has given. Thank you, Father, for giving your son. And I pray that we would know that. It, 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 It... the pain that it caused the son, the, the pain that it caused the father, the pain that it caused the spirit as they're watching this take place. But there is Jesus forsaken so that you and I would never, ever be forsaken. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, it says in verse 5, Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How is that possible? It is possible because of the fact that he was forsaken for us. And I know sometimes, you guys, when we're going through things, and I know, you know, you, you, you may not, you know, feel God's presence, and sometimes the pain is so difficult that you wonder, well, where is God? All I know is that, yeah, maybe there are times that you can't feel it, but you can know it. You might not, you know, uh, be there when the situations are according to what you would have planned for your life. But understand, basically the message of today, Good Friday, is that God can take all things and work it out for good. Now, I was thinking about this. I'm like, Lord, you know, one of the things I want one day is to be a good man. One of the things that I want, Lord, is is to have a good life. And, and the Lord was telling me, yeah, you know, Barnabas was called a good man and things like that are possible. But the only way that you could ever even experience the fullness of the Holy Spirit and be a good man or a good woman or have a good life is through suffering. Is through the trials, is through the pain, and understanding really what Good Friday was all about. That he was forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. And so Jesus cried out, uh, he was speaking Aramaic, Eli, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani. Some of the people that were there were kind of saying, well, it sounds Hebrew to me. And they thought he was calling Elijah, he wasn't. Um, and then when you read the story, and again, we can't cover everything, but you read through the different Gospels and the chronology of everything. What happened at this point was Jesus said, I thirst. And they gave him a little bit uh, something to wet his whistle. And then what we find when you read the whole story, it says in verse 45, uh, verse uh, 40, uh, 49, uh, let him alone. And let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And then if this is verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And what he said is, it is finished. To tell us die. He finished the work. That's the one thing he wanted everyone to hear. And then we find that he yielded up his spirit. And that was when God gave his life for us. 
You know, we see the result there in verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. The veil, you got those of you guys who know your Old Testament, was that thick veil, two inches at least thick, that separated God from everyone else. Only the high priest could go beyond the veil, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. But the moment that Jesus died, saying, it is finished, I've finished the work, then that veil was torn in two from God from top to bottom so that you and I can now enter in at any time. The Bible says that in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, we can come boldly to this throne of grace. And so this is what God has done for us. This is what Good Friday is all about. And my prayer is that we would understand this cross, you know, where God laid down his life for us and that we would give him our heart.